You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. More notes on the RCMP espionage scandal. The CSE's preliminary assessment sounds serious indeed, and Canadian intelligence services are trying to identify and contain the damage Cameron Ortis is alleged to have done. The other four eyes are doing so as well. Australia considered that a hacking incident early this spring may have been a Chinese effort to compromise election systems. ISIS is back online, and Mr. Snowden wouldn't mind asylum in France. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, September 17, 2019. The presumably now former Director General of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police National Intelligence Coordination Centre, Cameron Ortis, had access to sensitive intelligence provided by Canada's Five Eyes partners, Canadian officials now say. Mr. Ortis was indicted last week on charges of violating the Information Security Act. The CBC reports that Canada's communication security establishment's preliminary assessment holds that the damage done by the release of these reports and intelligence is high and potentially devastating. Which sounds serious indeed. The word high in the CSE's assessment is in all capital letters for emphasis. Crown counsel is understandably not saying much, but prosecutors did say Without going into too much detail, it is alleged he obtained, stored, and processed sensitive information. The Crown believes with the intent to communicate that information with people he shouldn't be communicating to. The CSE is the rough equivalent of the Australian Signals Directorate, New Zealand's Government Communications Security Bureau, Britain's Government Communications Headquarters, and the American National Security Agency. How much intelligence from the other eyes, Australia, New Zealand, the United Kingdom and the United States, was compromised is unclear. But the Washington Post observes that Canada is reckoned a net consumer of information, receiving more than it gives. So Ottawa is concerned not only about its own counterintelligence problems, but about the possibility of fallout on its key allies. As his job title suggests, Mr. Ortis was no small fish. He held an important position in Canadian intelligence, and he had access to a great deal of sensitive information. Global News reported that, quote, Ortis had access to the following information, identities of undercover Canadian police and undercover Canadian agents operating domestically and abroad, end quote. Again, it's not known how much of this is blown, nor to whom it may have been blown, but the potential damage is indeed serious. At the time of his arrest, among other official duties, Mr. Ortis is said to have been overseeing an investigation of Russian money laundering, specifically a $230 million fraud scheme 
Sergei Magnitsky exposed in 2008. Magnitsky, a Russian tax advisor, blew the whistle on the fraud, believed to have been run by senior Russian interior and tax officials. He was arrested by Russian police and murdered in jail in 2009. The U.S. Magnitsky Act, passed by Congress in 2012, is named in his honor and forbids those implicated in the murder from entering the U.S. or using the U.S. banking system. Mr. Ortis apparently approached Phantom Secure Communications, a Vancouver firm whose CEO is now in a U.S. prison, serving time for offenses related to provision of encryption services to the Sinloa drug cartel. In June 2017, a joint investigation by the FBI, RCMP, and Australian Federal Police resulted in the indictment of Phantom Secure executives in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of California. The company's CEO, Vincent Ramos, was sentenced to nine years on May 28th of this year. He's a Canadian citizen. Four of his colleagues from Phantom Secure remain at large. Evidence of Mr. Ortiz's contact with the company was discovered, the Globe and Mail reports, on a laptop the FBI seized during its investigation of Phantom Secure. The content of some emails, among other evidence, prompted the investigation that resulted in his arrest. Canadian police completed their investigation, according to reports, with a quiet search of Mr. Ortis's condo last month. A conviction on all counts could earn Mr. Ortis a sentence of 37 years. We should note that Phantom Secure Communications, the company implicated in the FBI's case against those who helped the Sinaloa cartel's drug traffickers evade surveillance and wiretapping, has no connection to the 2016 RSAC Innovation Sandbox winner, Phantom, a cybersecurity company that's now owned by Splunk. Many of us consider it important to provide mentorship, guidance, and inspiration for the next generation of cybersecurity professionals. How do we make sure the messages we're putting out there are the types of things they really need to hear? Carol Terrio files this report. So I dedicate a lot of time to educating people on how to be safer online through podcasts like this one, speaking at schools and events, and so on. Zoe Rose is an ethical hacker based in the UK, and she too is very involved in helping people be safer online. I asked her about her experiences and what advice she had for young people, especially women, who might want to get into the industry. Here's Zoe Rose. Reality is, I mean, if you look back um, before there was all this technology in our lives and we were coding through, you know, sheets of paper that have holes punched in it. But if you looked at it, these people, the majority of them were women. Uh, if you watch the um, Hidden Figures movie, they were, those women were the computers, you know, they were the ones doing all the technical. So it's not really unique to women, but I think it's more the, the cultural change of where we've made that assumption that it makes us unique. And so I think identifying to young people that actually it does come naturally and you're not, it's not going to be, ridiculously challenging for you to get into it because you probably have a good understanding. Do you um, feel that women are treated um, differently in the industry? What I've noticed is in the beginning, I found it very challenging. Um, This is more than 10 years ago, mind you. But I was told by one organization, they don't hire women because they're too distracting to men. (laughs) I've had yeah, I know. <laughs> I told them to stop hiring children. Um, 
Um, I've also had situations where I've had to block um, colleagues and, uh, you know, remove them from my life because they've become very uncomfortable and mm-hmm. I've felt unsafe. But what I've noticed was in those situations, it was the top down that was allowing that culture to exist. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't everybody thought that. It was that senior leadership didn't say anything or actively participated in that belief. And actually, finding organizations that aren't like that, I mean, back then I found it very challenging, but now I find it actually quite a bit easier. And when I find an organization I potentially want to work for, I look at how senior leadership, you know, approaches this. Mm. So I don't know if it's easier now because I'm much more knowledgeable and secure and, you know, know a lot more than I did 15, 20 years ago. My instincts say to me that the environment is changing for the for the good. And it is I think it's easier for women to get into the industry now than it may have been. But at the same time, there's probably going to be new challenges now. Definitely. So last year I spoke in Sri Lanka and um, what really stood out to me. And the reason I bring this up is I presented, um, I think I called it in the life of an ethical hacker. And afterwards, I got a lot of young young men, school age to just about graduate. Um, and young men came up and they're like, oh, I'm going to be the most elite pen tester. Or I'm going to be the coolest hacker. And um, none of them talked about their skills or anything. They just talked about how they're going to be super elite. And then these two young women came up to me and they were like, you know what? Actually, it was really cool hearing your talk because I never thought I'd be good enough to be a hacker or I'd be good enough to be a programmer. I really thought that I just don't have the skill. So I was talking to them about their experience. And my goodness, Carol, these two young ladies are more advanced, more intelligent than I could ever dream to be. They were so skilled. It was bloody impressive. And I was thinking about it after and I was like looking at the males and how, you know, confident they were that they were going to take over the world. Whereas these two young women, they were highly technical, but didn't think they were. They were very intelligent, very hardworking, and yet they still worried that they wouldn't be good enough. It is really refreshing to hear about young people that understand that in order to become really good at something, it takes a lot of patience and work and skill. And that's how you develop the skill, by just dedicating yourself to it. Definitely. I mean, my background is networking, network architecture. And then I went into network security and then I went to cybersecurity. So I admit that I've got gaps in my knowledge. I mean, I was never a programmer and I would never say I am. And that that to me is vital because people will come to me and be like, how can I be the best programmer? And I'll be like, honestly, I'm not going to be the most effective person. So here's the people that you should speak to because they're brilliant. I like what she says about women and technology having always been intertwined and that women tend to really work on their skills before they get into the industry. This could just give them a bit of edge. This was Carol Terrio for the CyberWire. Australian officials were concerned that attacks on parliament and three major political parties, now generally thought to have been conducted by China, also aimed at compromising state and territorial election systems the Australian Broadcasting Corporation reports. The several electoral commissions were asked to investigate whether they'd been penetrated and to let Canberra know what they found. In all cases, the report says, the findings were negative. They had not been hacked. 
The Islamic State, ISIS, which has for some time been hidden from view, has resurfaced online with messages urging adherents to establish new bases of operation in Southeast Asia and howling for any lone wolves who might be listening to do whatever they can to free ISIS detainees from whatever jails, prisons, or camps that are holding them. And finally, in the midst of other Edward Snowden news that's come out this week as the bad boy of the sysadmin world talks to people about his forthcoming memoir, is this nugget. The AP says Ed Snowden would rather receive asylum in France than Russia. Well, we would too if it came down to it, but asylum in France? Take a number, Ed. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by David DeFore. He's the Vice President of Engineering and Cybersecurity at WebRoot. David, it's always great to have you back. I wanted to touch today on file backups and some of the, the nuances and how people define backups and what's the difference between backups and syncing and things like that. Great to be back, David. And, you know, this is literally for the past three years, one of my hot button topics. If any of your listeners ever find me at a conference and they want to watch me, you know, fall over um, just just bring up this topic and it makes me pass out because we do it. I cannot talk about this enough. It's so important. Fundamentally, file syncing. This is when you're using your OneDrive or your iCloud where, or Dropbox. And these are all amazing, wonderful products. And I use them heavily. And what they do is they keep my data synchronized across my machines. And one of the most beautiful things they do is when one of my machines dies or I drop it you know, in a lake, and it's no longer usable, I know my data is in the cloud. I can go to the store, buy a new computer, and bring my data down. 
Folks like you and me, David, we remember the good old days back in the 90s when when you bought a new computer and it'd take you four days to get your data over, right? Yeah, 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 I do. But that, but that synchronization process, and because you can buy a new computer and get your data onto that machine quickly, that process has people thinking, oh, my data is backed up. The problem with that is one instance of your data exists and you're able to get to it from many devices. And my point in this, a proper backup is whether it's online or offline is something that is iterative. You can roll back to different versions. You are able to pull it down or pull it out of a drawer because you did it on a disk and put it in a machine and get your information back. Again, a lot of the services today are doing a really good job of protecting your information, et cetera. But what happens if you get corrupted data? And that corrupted data then syncs to all your machines. Guess what? You don't have a backup. You have a bunch of synced up corrupted data. I think for a lot of people, probably myself included, at some point along the way, you learn that lesson the hard way. You do because all of a sudden, and this is a very extreme case, it's possible it doesn't happen that often, but it's possible your local folder gets hacked, ransomware encrypts all that data, that data syncs up to the cloud, and what you thought was a backup is no longer a backup, it's just a synchronized bunch of ransomware data. So that's an extreme case. But David, that's not the only case. A more common case is... You know, you're a big uh, photo taker. I know you're taking those selfies all the time on your iPhone, David, because the world would would be a lesser place without them. (laughs) Um, I can't can't deny that. (laughs) Yes. But what happens when you fill up that synchronization folder and that data is no longer synchronizing, but you're not paying attention to it. You're just clicking ignore, clicking Mm -hmm. ignore. Your sync folder's full, and all of a sudden the important information that's on one machine is lost. You don't have it anymore. This is, again, why it's another example of why... Proper backups are so critical, especially for businesses, but individuals should think about it as well. Now, what about this notion that I hear from folks in the backup game that one is none, that uh, one backup is not sufficient? If, if something's important to me, I need to have it in at least two places aside from the original. I could not agree more. I do believe in online backup technology. I think it's great, but you're absolutely right. One is none. I'm a huge proponent of backing up your data, having it in that synchronized place as well. But being in the industry I'm in, one of the biggest things I I believe in is if it's something you cannot lose, it is so important to you, your life will be over if you lose it, put it on hard media and put it in a drawer somewhere. That is the best way to have data backed up. So that external hard drive, that external uh, flash drive, whatever it is, just uh, keep that copy disconnected from the main system. That's exactly right. Just, yeah. You don't want hackers getting to it. Right. Yeah. Have that that, uh, that high impedance air gap, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, as always, David DeFore, thanks for joining us. Hey, great being here, David. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. 
That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.